Well, praise the Lord that that is true. It is not death to die for those who trust in Christ. So we think about people like the Apostle Paul, surely this kind of truth would have carried them. One who suffered so much, one who encountered so many troubles, so many pressures. The Apostle Paul was one who had formerly been a persecutor of the church, but God laid a hold of him and transformed him into a servant of the church. And in this new life of service to Christ, he became inundated with all sorts of immense and various pressures on every side. He labored night and day. He said he suffered imprisonments. He was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, spending a night and a day floating in the deep, frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from his countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. There was labor and there was hardship. He says there were many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And to all of these various external pressures, there was the internal pressure of his daily concern for the churches. And yet, this same man, even in the midst of all of these kinds of pressures, could say in Philippians 4 verse 11 that he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he would find himself. This man had an otherworldliness about him. He had a peace that surpasses comprehension. Now where did he get such peace? I can tell you that it didn't originate with him. He didn't simply conjure this peace up in himself. He didn't get it from imagining himself to be in some happy place. Where did it come from? Where did he get this peace? This peace that is of inestimable value. People go all their lives searching for such peace and never find it. They search the world for it to no avail. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about this very kind of peace that we saw at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. We have been working our way through chapter 14 of John, and today we will look at the remaining verses of this chapter. Our text is John 14, verses 27 through 31. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to peek into the upper room, to learn of what you said to your disciples there, and to be equipped and strengthened and encouraged by your words. Help us this morning to learn of the glorious peace that you give to those who trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know what it is to be troubled, to be fearful. How easy it is for us to become frazzled, frustrated, paralyzed, deflated, defeated when the pressure is on. You need to know that Jesus does not intend for his disciples to be dominated by these kinds of attitudes. Indeed, he commands his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled or be fearful. And so my desire for us this morning as we walk through this passage is that we would learn to dispel trouble and fear from our hearts as we walk in the peace that Christ gives to those who trust in Him. There are three characteristics of this true peace that Christ offers that you need to be aware of so you can know how to experience this peace in increasing measure in your life. First characteristic that marks this peace is the true peace comes from Christ. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. D.A. Carson notes in his commentary on John that Jesus uses this, the Greek word for peace here in a, in a way that is reflective of the Hebrew counterpart to it, shalom. Carson says that this was a customary Jewish greeting and also a word of farewell. May it go well with you. May you fare well. May you be satisfied and made whole. Jesus is coming back around to the departure language. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus told his disciples not to be troubled by the news that he was departing. And then he went on to speak these many words of comfort and promise that we've been steeping in and enjoying as we've worked our way through this chapter. And 
Now he brings it back around to the reality that he will leave them soon. And he comes back around also to address the trouble that he perceives in their hearts. And Jesus wants to be crystal clear here that he intends to convey much more than a simple, sentimental gesture of farewell. We know how easy and commonplace it is for people in the world to to wish each other well when they part ways. But Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus speaks much more than just a simple common farewell. He promises to actually leave real peace with them. Indeed, he promises to give them his own peace, the only true peace. When we began looking at the upper room discourse in chapter 13, we noted that Jesus had brought into this world a love that is from out of this world, a love from heaven. And we could say that in chapter 14, we learn of Jesus bringing into the world a peace that is from out of this world. This peace is not naturally occurring in a sin-corrupted world. Rather, we see nations warring against nations. We see hatred continuing to deepen. We see fractures continuing to widen and anxieties and fears ever growing. What we see at the end of John 14 is that while this world is unable to offer any real and lasting peace, Christ offers a peace that is from out of this world. And it was this precise peace from Christ that enabled the Apostle Paul to be content while facing pressures on every side as he was undergoing immense suffering. It was this peace from Christ that gave him the ability, after being seized and dragged into a marketplace before authorities, having his robe torn, being beaten with rods, and after many blows, being thrown into prison with his feet fastened in stocks, to then, along with his ministry partner Silas, be praying and singing hymns of praise to God in the Philippian prison. It was well with their soul. That is not a peace that this world can give. There is only one source for peace like that. Jesus Christ. He promises his disciples, my peace I give to you. Where have you been looking to acquire peace for your soul? I can tell you, you won't find it in career success. You won't find it in health or in wealth. You won't find it in comfort food. You won't find it in a human relationship. It's not that these things are inherently bad things, but you must not see them as able to supply to your heart the peace that it needs. They can all be taken away in a moment, gone in a flash. Job saw that. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Now, perhaps this seems obvious to you conceptually. Of course, Jesus is the only source of peace, you may say. But you need to know that it is dangerous to think that simply knowing this conceptually makes you immune to seeking peace in the wrong places. We are all susceptible to having a number of things become idols in our lives that we form a dependence upon in searching for this feeling of peace. But none of those things can supply true peace to you because true peace comes from Christ. True peace comes from Christ. He is the only source. A second quality of this peace that you need to know about is that true peace rejoices in Christ's glorification. Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Here Jesus is referring back to what he's just spoken to them about going away and, and then coming to them. But the going away part seems to be all that they can think about. And they're getting stirred up and troubled and fearful. And particularly they're thinking about what this going away means for them. The idea of separation from Christ. Calvin describes what is being exposed in the disciples here, saying, quote, Some carnal affection was mixed with their love. Close quote. Some carnal affection was mixed with their love. It's not that the disciples didn't have love for Christ, but it was an immature love. They are saddened by the thought of being without His presence in their lives, which they have come to appreciate and to value. But they have allowed themselves to be overcome by concerns about the possible effects on them. We've seen them fight about who's the greatest. We know that pride and selfishness are a significant problem for them. And I hope we know that we're not immune to that either. Jesus is addressing His disciples' reaction to His words that He's just spoken to them about going away and then coming to them. They're so focused on themselves and the potential negative outcome for them that they are not able to rejoice in what his departure entails. They're not getting it. We see here that allowing selfishness to foster unchecked in our hearts will hinder us from experiencing the peace that Christ offers to us. And so we should ask the question, what ought have been of greater importance to the disciples concerning what Jesus was telling them. 
what ought to have been most important? What ought to have moved them to rejoicing? He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Why? He says, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This has to do with the humiliation of Jesus in the Incarnation. When he speaks of needing to go to the Father, because the Father is greater than he. Look with me at Philippians 2. We get more insight into Christ's incarnation and the significance of what he's saying here in John 14. Beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, so he states clearly here that he is God. He is equal with God. And John is clear from the very first verse of the gospel that the Word was God in no uncertain terms. Jesus is equal with His Father. He is God. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied Himself by addition. He didn't lose his divinity in any way, but rather he'd emptied himself in the sense that he took on a human nature. He took on a humiliation in the incarnation to become a creature, a man. This is the time of his humiliation. And so in this sense, the Father is greater than he. This time of humiliation would inevitably, inevitably lead to the cross. He didn't regard with God, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, he became a man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He submitted his human will in obedience to His Father's divine will in everything. And in doing so, even to the point of death, even to the lowest humiliation, He would come out on the other side of that cross in exaltation. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is basically telling His disciples, you are too caught up with yourselves. You are hindering yourselves from experiencing the rejoicing that would come with a right perspective about these words of mine and a deeper, more 
mature love for me. That is what Christ is pointing out to them. They needed a deeper yearning for the incarnate Son to return to the glory that He had with the Father before the world was. They needed a deeper yearning for the Son to be glorified. No matter what that entails. The glorification of Christ needed to be the governing desire of their hearts if they were to experience the peace that Christ was offering them. The more that you come to love Christ, the more that you will yearn for Him to be glorified. Sometimes Christ being glorified in our lives will come at great temporal cost to us. Consider again the Apostle Paul When the Lord told Ananias to go to Paul after Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus, the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul would suffer much for Christ's name, for Christ's glory. Paul even prayed about a particular affliction three times, asking of the Lord to take it away. And the Lord effectively said, No, no, I will allow it to remain. I will allow it to remain for your good so that you will be humbled, so that in your humiliation, in your weakness, my strength will be on display, my grace will be on display, my glory will be on display in you. Jesus' disciples needed to know that their own self-love was hindering them from rejoicing over Christ, being glorified, even in in the consideration that there may be great temporal cost for them. It would be worth it for them to potentially suffer great loss in the process of Christ being glorified, being exalted. And they were simply hindering themselves from experiencing this peace and this rejoicing. If only they would come to love Christ more and care more about His glory than having their selfish concerns satisfied. And the same applies to us. Christ freely offers His peace to those who are His disciples. And we hinder ourselves from experiencing that peace when we allow self-love to crowd out and taint our love for Christ. We hinder ourselves from experiencing peace when our desires, personal desires, and the satisfaction of those desires becomes more important than being satisfied with seeing Christ glorified. We lack peace when our priorities are out of order. Are there particular desires in your life that you've allowed to become a hindrance to your affections for Christ. 
your ability to rejoice when He's glorified. Even as you may suffer as He is glorified. Are there things you've formed a dependence upon for having a sense of peace in your life? Comforts that you would be devastated to lose if they were to be removed from your life. Christ's glory must be our chief aim. It must be our greatest desire. We must be willing to lose anything for it. We must even be willing to die for it. It's the aim for Christ's glory that it comes with a deeper love for Christ. And it calls for a cultivating of a deeper love for Christ. So we love Him more. We want to see Him glorified. Which brings us to our third characteristic of true peace, which is that true peace is grounded in Christ's redemptive work. True peace is grounded in Christ's redemptive work. Verses 20 9 to the end of chapter 14. Now I have told you before, it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. Jesus had repeatedly made comments to his disciples that they would understand more fully later. He even pointed that out to them. Like he he does that right here specifically. That here's why I'm telling you these things now. Because they're going to happen. And there's a specific reason that I'm telling you about them now. It is so that you may Believe. Jesus was taking many steps during the time he spent with his disciples to ensure the building up of their faith. This was a major focus for Christ. He wanted to nurture their faith. He explicitly tells him them as much. This is amazing. What a savior. He doesn't snuff out the smoldering flame. He doesn't crush the bruised reed. He's a kind and merciful Savior. He's patient with His disciples. He protects that that little faith to build it up, to strengthen it with the truths that He speaks to them. Look at verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Jesus is indicating that it is time, that time is drawing near for him to be crucified even nearer than when he first started speaking to them 
in the upper room, so much so that he says, get up, let's go from here. It's time to move closer. It's coming. So they are going to leave the upper room at this point. And they're going to head toward Gethsemane and he will continue to teach them along the way to build them up with his truth. But, but this statement of his to get up and for them to start moving, this is a signal that things are drawing nearer even as he still has more things to say to them. But they're going to be on the move. And he says here that the, the ruler of the world is coming. This is the context in which he is saying we need to get up and go. The ruler of the world is coming. And the ruler of the world here is Satan. If you were with us in our first hour, you, you see the providence of God. As Marshall so helpfully pointed to us, various passages that speak of this ruler of the world. I would highly encourage you, if you're not already coming to that first hour, it's a glorious walk through the book of Revelation, and you want to have some peace in your life, you need to know what's going to happen in the future. Just like Christ was telling his disciples about future things. And you will get to hear that and be built up in that if you come to that, that first hour. In there, he was talking about Satan being God of this world. And that, that does not mean that he is sovereign over the world. No, he is subject to the sovereignty of God. He can only do what God instructs and permits him to do. But it is true that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in the sense that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They are under his sway. And Jesus is basically saying that this one, this Satan, this ruler of the world is coming for him. We saw that Satan had entered into Judas in chapter 13 and that Judas was actively seeking to betray Christ. And Satan would work through Judas to go to Roman and Jewish authorities to facilitate the arrest and the crucifixion of Christ. But Jesus makes clear here that Satan has nothing in him. That is, Satan will not be able to exploit any fault in Jesus. He will not be able to pressure the Son into disobedience to his Father. He will not be able to pressure the Son into sin. No fault can legitimately be found in him. There is no bit of rebellion in him that the devil can get a hook on. Jesus will remain blameless through it all. The ruler of the world is coming, but he's got nothing in me, as Jesus says. So don't worry. Don't fear. And thus Jesus says in verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. This is why these things are going to happen. This is why he's going to be crucified. Jesus is not going to be crucified because he deserves it. Jesus is not going to be crucified because the satanic ruler of the world has something over him. 
No. He is going to be crucified because he wants to display to the world that he loves his Father. Man is to demonstrate his love for God through obedience to God. And so as the Son of God took on human flesh and became a man, the man Christ Jesus, so the incarnate Son wanted to demonstrate his love for his Father through obedience to his Father's will. Namely, the cross. Culminating in the cross. Jesus said in John 4.34 that his food was to do the will of His Father who sent Him and to accomplish His work. He yearns to do the will of His Father more than He hungers for food. How glorious. What a Savior. He wants to finish the mission for which He has been sent and He hungers for it. That is what drives Him. He wants to show His love for his father by obeying his father, as we saw in Philippians 2, even to the point of the deepest obedience and lowest of humiliation. He was going to suffer and die on the cross like a wicked criminal. A death he did not deserve, but a death that would please his father. Why? Why would Jesus' sinless life end like this? Why would this happen to him? How would this bring pleasure to his father and show his love for his father? Mark 10:45 For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. By Jesus' death, many sinners would be ransomed. Jesus was sent on a mission to save sinners. He was sent on a mission to ransom enemies of God so that they could be brought to be at peace with God. We are all born sinners and enemies of God. And we deserve the eternal wrath of God for our rebellion against Him. But the Father has chosen a people for his son to ransom. He has chosen a people for his son to reconcile to him. He has sent his son to accomplish their redemption at the price of his own precious blood. You see, you cannot have the peace of God without first being at peace with God. If you are an enemy of God, there can be no true peace in your soul. Because you are at odds with God. You are not in good standing with God. His wrath abides on you because you are His enemy. And your life is opposed to Him and He is opposed to you. But, John tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died so you could have life. Jesus died so you could be at peace with God. So that you could thus have the peace of God in your soul. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having 
been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enmity between you and God has been put to rest if you are trusting in Christ. And therefore, your heart can be at rest. Augustine so aptly described the situation in this way. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. True peace is grounded in Christ's redemptive work. We could say that that our subjective experience of peace is grounded in the objective peace that God has secured through Christ's death to pay for our sin. There is no greater foundation of peace than knowing that you are at peace with God and no longer His enemy. What greater position can you be in in your life when you are no longer God's enemy? And moreover, you are His beloved child whom He loves. Peace with God leads to experience the, experiencing the peace of God in your soul. There is a calm within your soul that results from there being a calm between you and God when there was once enmity between you and God. It is a profound blessing to be part of the body of Christ and to witness the peace of Christ in his people. And your fellow believers, there are people suffering in our church. There are people watching loved ones suffer and serving them as they face trials. And while things may seem to be coming apart and unraveling around them in their life circumstances, you witness a Savior holding them together. You see the steadying peace of Christ at work in their hearts and lives. This is the glorious work of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, helping them, comforting them in a way no one else can, using the truth of the Word to inform their thinking, helping them to be content with whatever God ordains, and trusting in God. What an encouragement to the people of God. What a gift that Christ has promised to his disciples. That we would have such peace. His peace. Those disciples were about to go through a storm with the events that lay ahead for them. Christ's crucifixion is coming And there would be severe persecution that they would face in their apostolic ministry. All but one martyred. But the peace of Christ would sustain them through it all. Perhaps there's someone here who has never truly experienced this peace of Christ that we see Jesus talking about. That we see in the lives of God's people Perhaps you've never experienced the rich assurance of knowing that Jesus paid it all for you. 
you don't know what it's like to have that assurance that you've been reconciled to God. That you've been spared eternal judgment and been given eternal life in Christ. Jesus said that he told his disciples about these things so that they might believe. That is what you need to do. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone to have made peace between you and God through his death, his sufficient death that can swallow up all the enmity and put your trust wholly in the redemptive work of Christ to save your soul. For those who are trusting in Christ, the circumstances in your lives are ever-changing. Conversely, Christ's perfect life of obedience to His Father for you, and Christ's finished work on the cross for you does not change. Hallelujah. It is fixed. It is stable. And therefore, your heart can be stabilized as you believe it. No matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter what loss or turmoil comes into your life, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a treasure Christ has promised to those who trust in Him. True peace. His peace. True peace comes from Christ. There is no other source. True peace rejoices in Christ's glorification. A greater love for Christ will lead to a greater rejoicing in Him being glorified, even when it comes a great temporal cost to us. Allowing other desires to be elevated above that desire for Him to be glorified will certainly hinder your experience of the peace that Christ makes available for you to walk in. And true peace is grounded in the redemptive work of Christ, His perfectly righteous life, and His loving obedience to His Father all the way to the point of death on the cross secures peace between believers and God so that we can enjoy the peace of God. What a glorious gift from our Savior. I leave you with the words of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son your beloved Son, that we might be able to receive His peace. Having our sins paid for on the cross, having the enmity between you and us removed as we trust in you and removed forever. May we grow in our love for Christ as we see His love for you and for us. May we learn to walk in the peace that you supply in all circumstances, trusting you, delighting in you being glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.